everyone. It's the Life of Gem live video podcast. This is a season four, episode one. And I call this episode, Writing the Hard Stories. And you're going to see why. Today in our first episode, we have Hannah Sword, who wrote one of my favorite books. Here it is. Strip a memoir. Give us a wave, Hannah. She's right there. She's in the green room. So I'm going to read her bio. And then she's going to come on live and read a portion of her book, and then we'll get into the meat of the interview. Hannah is the critically acclaimed author of the underground memoir, Strip, a memoir, which has received rave reviews from authors such as Nobel Prize winner J.M. Coetzee, Melissa Broder, and New York Times bestselling novelist Carolyn Levitt. Most recently, she was awarded a full scholarship for the 2023 We Tell Stories Writing Program, and she's been chosen as the 2023 guest author of the We Tell Stories Worldwide Literary Conversation Series and Dialogue with Voices and Faces Project founder Anna K. Reem and World Without Exploitation. She serves on the board of the Right to Write Press, a nonprofit, get this, that supports writers, emerging writers who are incarcerated. She lives in LA, Los Angeles, where she's working on her next book, which I cannot wait to read. Hopefully it comes out soon. A collection of stories about love, jealousy, and affairs. Ooh, that sounds really good. Find more about her on her website, www.hannaswear.com. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Hi, Kim. So happy to be here. <laughs> I'm a little rusty. You know, I haven't, I was on a hiatus for about three months. So uh, I'm feeling a little bit nervous. I usually don't get nervous, but that's good. So let's start with you reading. I really want people to hear your beautiful stories. I know we had a couple shout outs, people asking for specific stories. So I'm going to put the camera on you and go. Yeah, yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, It's Hannah Sward reading from Strip and Memoir. I had picked out a, a lighter section, and then I was reminded that uh, the title of this uh, episode is called Writing the Hard Stuff. So this chapter is called The Little Boy in the Blue Jumper, and it's a few pages long. Rilke did get over squid. She fell in love with an Austrian-Jamaican man. They got married at a friend's house in the hills by a priest they had found in the back of the LA Weekly. Priest on wheels, the ad said. It was a small outdoor wedding and our mom was there and Rilke's dad, Paul. Rilke looked so beautiful in her simple silk white dress with her long hair loose and the man she loved by her side. Unlike me, she had always wanted to get married and have kids. We're moving to New York, she said the day of the wedding. When she told me that, my whole body froze and I couldn't hold back the tears. It felt like when we were kids, all those summers of having to say goodbye to each other, only this time Rilke was leaving. What will happen when one of us falls in love? We'd always ask one another. We'll just have to tell our husbands he has to take the sister too. We said that for a lot of years, but we knew the truth. It would be hard. When she left, I stopped stripping. Nobody wants a crying stripper, and I couldn't do it without her. 
something in me went wrong. It was like I was two again, but I was in my late 20s and feeling maybe what I had felt like when I was two and my mom left and I didn't have any words, just the memory of arms reaching out of the crib for her, reaching, crying, but she never came. I don't remember who did. When I was 10, I saw a movie. I don't remember anything about it except one scene, and I'm not sure if it's exactly how it was in the movie. But what stayed with me since then was the image of a mom and her two-year-old boy, a white house with a pebble path and long driveway. The boy is looking out the window, little hands and face pressed against the glass. He's wearing a blue jumper. The mom, she's walking down the path, not looking back. Skirt to the knees, bare calves, heels, click, click on the pebbles. The boy is crying. Mom, she does not turn back, gets in her car. The boy is gone from the window, his handprints left on the glass from the fog of his breath. He runs out the front door, his face is red, the tears, the cries, his arms outstretched before him, reaching towards her. She is driving away. He's running after her. The blue strap of his jumper comes undone. Snot runs down his nose. He can hardly breathe. Mom, mom, she does not come back. I was 10 and in that movie theater and I couldn't breathe. I couldn't stop crying shaking. The image of that boy at the window, hands pressed against the glass, him running after her. I carried that image of him with me for so many years. I could still hear the sound of her heels on the pavement. Click, click as she walked away. I couldn't let it go. Is that how I felt when I was two and my mom went away? All I ever wanted was for my mom to be there. Growing up that one month out of the year going to see her, I wanted to feel special, to be seen. I saw moms packing lunch boxes for their kids in commercials, kids who got angry at their moms in the movies. Getting angry, that seemed like a privilege to me. I was too scared, scared that she wouldn't be there if I ever got angry. But she was already not angry, or she was already not there. I have pictures of Rilke and I standing with our mom in matching gold lame shorts under a palm tree and me with her on my 16th birthday. She had invited kids from the neighborhood, nobody I knew, to Sophie's, a French restaurant. I sat at the head of the table with my crew cut that mom didn't like, and Rilke, she had her hair in two long braids that mom did like. And she got to stay, and I was always the one that had to go away. I felt guilty for these thoughts, because maybe I was wrong. Maybe she was there every July. I didn't know, but I did remember the goodbyes at Bradenton Airport. I didn't like being left, or airports. I always got lost on the way. Everybody knew not to call me to pick them up or take them to the LAX. Something always happened along the way. And now Rilke was leaving. With her there, 
she was who I held on to. We were enmeshed. I had no sense of self without her, and now she was gone. I started having panic attacks, crying everywhere, on the Stairmaster, driving, the grocery store. I hated doing the movie extra work, so I got a job as a hostess at a restaurant on Sunset Plaza. I stood outside in the sun, wiped the menus clean, seated people with tears streaming down my cheeks. One of the bus boys asked, you're not going to kill yourself, are you? Wow. Wow. And I'll also be reading in case uh, they're the here, uh, one from Friendly House later on uh, that was requested. That was beautiful. You know, I, I this we call this episode Telling the Hard Stories. And what I love so much about your book, and everyone should get it um, if you don't have it already, Strip a Memoir, is that there's a lightness to it. I mean, you even say uh, nobody wants a crying stripper, right? I mean, there's this sense of abandonment with Rilke leaving you, going to New York, and you're like, we were supposed to always stay together, right? And that is really profound. And then it's dovetailing with your mom and her leaving you when you were two. I mean, that's what your book starts out with, right? The first yeah. sentence in your book, which I found really interesting, is my mom left when I was two. Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about that. Um, I want to talk about the child voice in the book, but because you read that piece, um, the character of your mother is, and your father, uh, who's passed away, but your mother's still alive, um, how did you go about writing about your mother? Um, your dad raised you. I mean, was that difficult? Did you just write it and then not censor yourself so that you could just get it all down on paper? I mean, tell people about your process. Yeah. Well, I think it really helped that in the beginning, I didn't know I was writing a memoir. I didn't know mm. I was writing a book. My intention was to put pen to paper and write again. I had was early in sobriety, and it really, like, it just broke me that I wasn't doing what I knew I needed to be doing. And I'm not even talking about, like, I, I never wanted to write a necessarily a, a full-length book. Short stories had been my thing. So it was pen to paper every day for a couple of years until I started uh, taking some direction with a mentor who said, this is, you have a book here, you have a memoir here. So in answer to your question, it really helped that I didn't know that. Mm. Yeah. And, least, you know, I, I think there's something to be said for them coming out, the stories, Um and you just putting them on paper, not knowing which direction you were going to take it. I mean, you're so clearly a memoirist. You know, my favorite memoirs capture little snippets of life and then connect them all together into a narrative and a story. And it's a literary memoir is what this is, really. It's not a biography. It's a literary memoir. It's very literary. It reads like, you know, a novel. Um, and, and you're in the little girl's head at the very beginning. So I reread your book and I already knew that it was really two parts, childhood, adulthood, but you actually um, explicitly separated 
from uh, childhood and adulthood. The first, um, I think it's the first um, 60 or 70 pages are the child voice. And then you have part two, adulthood. Talk about child voice. Is that something you naturally were able to write? I, I feel like the best writers of child voice, it just comes naturally to them. I talk about um, one of my favorite authors, James Joyce, um, in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Um, he has his story where he's talking to like a little boy and he's like the little tuku. I mean, the child voice is very simple, right? And it can also be very poetic. Kids are very um, deep. So talk about child voice and how you're able to hone that voice because your child voice is beautiful. I mean, like uh, this is an example. If anyone wants to write child voice, the first uh, third of this book, which is written in child voice, is kind of how you do it. Wow. Well, I'm taking in everything you said, and I... <laughs> I mean it. I mean, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Really well I'm done. really grateful I have fans on both sides of myself to cool myself so I'm not turning bright red. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you for all of that. I'm not that. trying to make you blush. Yeah, I, I just really mean it because it's hard to write child voice well. And you either do it well or you don't, and you do it well. So how'd you do that? Did you just start writing those stories about yourself as a kid? It's so interesting to hear uh, people say that once it was published. because, And it's almost hard to share because it feels like, yeah. uh, one, it would make me sound smarter if I said that it was consciously in child's voice. Uh, it was not a conscious decision, not in the early drafts. It, I think I naturally went to that place. Yeah. And even in my writer's group and with my mentor, people said that even my body language was very much like a six-year-old. And I remember, I, I remember bits and of, of those early days of writing it and especially reading it out loud. Mm -hmm. And that voice was I mean the way it is came out in the book and the way it's edited that yeah. was conscious. However, the early drafts were very breathless, and there was no punctuation, lots mm -hmm. of ands because it felt that felt like a child's voice. Like I was just getting it out, like and I was out of breath, just this kid trying to trying to tell the story, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and and. I, you know, I don't even think I like child's voice often in books. Mm. Um, yeah. It's yeah. hard. You know, um, Glass Castle does it well, too. And I took a memoir class really early on in, in my writing uh, process. And someone said, oh, that story where the parents leave at the casino and the kid. How old is that little girl supposed to be in the car waiting for the mom and dad to come out of the casino and the Glass Castle? And everyone was like, does it matter? It doesn't matter, right? You, I mean, I edited my child voice to simplify it um, when I did an edit on it, take out some of the big words, put smaller words, stuff like that. But I, I have a theory, and you can tell me if you believe it's right or not, Yeah. that um, our deepest stories that are just more like memories that we're trying to catch, it's channeling. Yeah. And it's about being a vessel and being able to just get it down on paper. For me, that absolutely at, at best, mm -hmm. right? Right, um, at best. Yeah, the best yeah. stories are kind of channeling. Yeah. And when I'm, you know, 
yeah, when I get quiet and write from that place of mm -hmm. channeling it, vesseling it, uh, when I'm in my head and really, you know, that monkey mind and that editing it as I'm writing yeah. it. Mm. Yeah. It, yeah. So absolutely. I, yeah. I, that lands with me very much what you're saying. And, and I, I cannot wait to read your book. Because uh -huh. I know it's in child uh, part of it, right? Yeah. How about half of it? You know, I wrote the very first story I wrote was my dad's eulogy and it's about me and my twin sister and my younger sister, Annie, and my dad, who's kind of drunk driving us to the drive-in. And I wrote that in like one sitting, like straight through, have never edited that story. Not one word, just came out fully formed. And I still, I still think it's one of my best. And it's simple. It's not, it's not complicated. It's just about putting the characters on the page. And you are so good at us getting to know you as a little girl. And it's a character. I'm going to be very clear for people who read memoir these are characters you cannot recreate yourself obviously but it, it you captured this young child in you so well and so beautifully and then you know your sister in the book is Rilke and the piece that you read about her you know going to New York and it, I mean she's kind of like your your twin for one of she's your like your bestie yeah and so um how was that writing about family? We talked about writing your mom. What about writing your dad and your and your sister? Like, how hard was that? Were they supportive, not supportive? My sister's always been incredibly supportive of my writing. And Dante is her real name, right? Dante's mm -hmm. her real name. And I think oh, cool. she's here. I don't, I can't see who's here. Uh, Shout out to Dante. Put a comment <laughs> if you're here. And my bestie's here. She said oh. hi. Oh my god, is, she, is that Tracy? That's Tracy. Okay, she popped up. <laughs> and then Jorge is here. Oh my goodness, Jorge, <laughs> I'm going to be reading for you. Oh, cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm sure your sister's here or she can watch later. But uh, So she's yeah. always been supportive? Always. Uh, and mm. that has really kept me going. Her and my stepfather, I, I mean, Aww. my sister is so well-read. I am not. Uh, and so, I mean, that has nothing to do with her taste. I just respect her, uh, yeah. in that way. So, 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 and I, and I also know that she would tell me the truth and she's always been supportive, uh, not just supportive. Um, but yeah, I never had any, I, I just didn't think about what, I mean, <laughs> just didn't think about her when I was writing it. <laughs> well, because you're talking about some really hard stuff like drug use and drinking and partying yeah. and stripping. And um, you two are kind of these partners in crime. Like, you know, yeah. you're doing it together. You're like, we got this. You're acting together. Um, yeah. And it's an adventure. The reason I love it is even though there's drug use and, you know, you're you're obviously sober now and you're not like condoning any of the stuff, but it was an adventure. Do you regret it? Like your life? Are you, are you, you know, happy with who you are and what you've done? I love the way you asked that. Uh, I've had that question asked before, but the way you word it is uh, very uh, non-judgmental. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't regret any of it. Mm. If you had asked me in my early sobriety, I would have said yes, not, uh, oddly enough, not the stripping or the sex work, uh, but the, the drugs, uh, mm -hmm. and, and for the length of time that I did it yeah. now that I have 13 years from it, I, I don't. Ooh. And 
so happy for you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and you know, it might have been harder to write about my sister had she been a drug addict as well and capturing that. And she's always been very open about uh, stripping and, and so forth. So, yeah. You know, it's interesting because RuPaul says, take what you're most ashamed of and make it your superpower. And for many years as a corporate lawyer, I hid that I was a high school dropout. Um, I didn't talk about being blue collar. I didn't talk about the fact that my dad was a trucker and my mom was a waitress. Um, I kind of hid that. And I was like this Eliza Doolittle in the corporate world trying to be someone I wasn't. Yeah. And it's only when you own who you are. And that's what I mean by not regretting it. People will ask me, do you regret dropping out of high school? And I said, no, it made me exactly who I am. I mean, yeah, yeah I regret that I made life hard for myself. I regret right. some of the stuff I've done in my life, drugs and stuff like that. But I don't regret, um, you know, in some of my, you know, juvenile delinquency. But I don't regret who I am or how I got here. You know, that's the difference. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, and I always had a sense, even all along in that, uh, that one day I might create something from mm, it. Yeah. And it was just really quiet, and, and other times, you know, I, I didn't see that that would ever be possible. But I, I remember being at the strip club and thinking that one there maybe one day I'd be capturing this. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting, too, because uh, you're such a, beautiful person inside and out. But I do get the sense in the book that the narrator doesn't see her external beauty the way others see her. Um, and we all have struggles with that. I mean, I look at pictures when I was 20. I was like, I was hot. What was wrong with me? Why was I so insecure about my body and stuff? And now I'm twice the size and I'm oh my more God. comfortable. Do you know what I mean, though? Well, yeah, because my sister and I saw pictures of our, I mean, for anyone who's read the book, we got lipos. Well, you'll speak for whatever. No, talk about that. That's yeah, hysterical. Got, I love that. Passion. We got liposuction yeah. on our asses because we really didn't like the way they looked from, I don't know, from the when we were little girls, we, we were mm -hmm. horrified. You wanted uh, the little line on your ass cheek. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I have a flat butt, butt, so I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> and I was uh, so like the in terms of seeing old pictures, we're like, oh, we were delusional. Because we saw pictures of our butt and my sister's showgirls. So we actually saw on the big screen. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. Was, she was a dancer, right? Oh, and speaking of showgirl, guess oh, there who's she is. here? <laughs> there she is. Dante. <laughs> I feel like I know you through this book. Um, and so then we were, and yeah. Ruth Marlene is here, too. She wrote a, a, a number of books. One called Hi, Ruagabe. Us and she's a writer uh, from Palm Springs. Tall. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah, that's so right. Go, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So, like what you said, looking back at pictures, and then it helps mm -hmm. me now when I look at pictures, and I'm like, well, I'm probably delusional now too. <laughs> so, yeah. I always say I'm reverse delusional. I always think I'm hotter and skinnier than I am. <laughs> I'm like, and then I'll see a picture, and I'm like, ooh, that's not cute. <laughs> She looks like Java the Hutt, you know. And, uh, well, that's what I mean. Like 20 years from now, you look back and go, oh, I was delusional. I mean, I'm not saying you're delusional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, seriously. Um, so let's move to um, 
how you wrote this book, which has a lot of very hard topics, some sexual trauma. How did you, so you wrote these stories and then when you were going to edit them, how did you take care of yourself while writing this book? I mean, there's a lot of like opening up. You put a lot of stuff on the page. You're very open yeah. and honest. And that's what I love about your book. You, you know, you put the blood on the page. You don't try to hide anything. And those are my favorite memoirs where you just put it out there. And it's like, it's just matter of fact in some sense. Like this right. shit happened. And yeah. uh, so how did you take care of yourself while you were writing it? And then also talk. The second part of this question is how hard was it to decide to publish this as a memoir? Because I've just been talking about a couple people about the issue of genre and that it's not really as important anymore. Um, mm. You know, you could fictionalize it. You could call it uh, auto fiction. You could call it fiction. You could call it half truth, half fiction. But you call this. It's in the title strip a memoir and I love that about it I think it's really easy for women to hide behind fiction um, because we're ashamed of this or that or we don't want the drama but there's also a power in owning owning it right 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 well when I love that question no one's ever asked me that before about how I took care of myself um, one it was a very very long process so I think like I wasn't on deadline or it was nothing like I was no, there was no outside pressure. The only pressure was what I brought in that point at certain points, how I took care of myself, I think was in the very nature of how slow it was the writing of it, how much support I had during it. My mentor, uh, I wrote it similarly to the pace of which my recovery grew. So as my mm. recovery grew, my writing in some sense grew because one of the things when I first started writing again was I couldn't sit for very long. I mean, I had done crystal meth for, I mean, almost a decade, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a little hard to sit still. Uh, the very nature of like, you know, sitting with myself, which is what yeah. the book is dedicated to sitting in that you know learning learning to sit in the hours uh so i would do it wow really i love that i'm gonna write this for everyone it's important for those of us with anxiety or addiction learning to sit in the hours yeah and, that, and that's always been my greatest dream i just was like if i can do that what there's nothing Oh, you wrote that there. <laughs> I was like, who yeah. wrote that? Well, no, uh, we were talking about this the other day when I wrote a blog about I had this overwhelming anxiety the other day. And not for any reason. Everything's going really well right now. I'm having one of the best times of my life in my writing career and in my public defense career. I won a bunch. But there's something for me when life is going well. It doesn't yeah. feel normal to me. Like, Oh, when's the other shoe going to drop? Who's going to die? What's going to happen? You know, yeah. when I was a kid, everything would always blow up. So I kind of live in that kind of. And um, I love that blog. You know, I think uh, it was the one that I commented on in it. I read it that yeah. morning and, and just really, really spoke to me. Uh, yeah. So going back to your question about how I took care of myself, uh, I wrote it really fast. Uh I, I kind of like the first draft was two mm. pages a day. Sometimes I didn't even sit down, but I would handwrite it. So I think part of handwriting was one way of taking care of myself. I didn't push myself to sit there at the typewriter. And, you know, I was just like, if it was in the car and it was my two pages, 
And it didn't matter what I wrote. I could be writing about the day, which made it for a very difficult editing process (laughs) because, you know, I had all this, I had so much material about like, well, now one another, you know, here I am writing about like this that has nothing to do with this. Uh, But I think that was a way of taking care of myself. The other thing is I wrote the very, I wrote the harder scenes later. So Mm -hmm. it was, it was like I had my first agent uh, who I trusted completely uh, as, as an editor said, which is, which was true. Most of my sex scenes were, and then I had sex. And that kind of goes with my style of writing, so I never really thought about it. But like when I took in his feedback, I did think, I'll, I'll listen to that. So yeah. going back in and fleshing the sex scenes out, that was probably one of the hardest things to do. Oh, uh, I can imagine, yeah. And yeah. so I really, I, I had a practice, actually. I had an exercise that I came up with before writing the scene and then during it I would write it and and check in with myself to make sure I was here so I wasn't disassociating uh, that's a big thing for me and then doing a grounding exercise when I came back for someone listening that might sound like a lot and so forth but I didn't want to I I, uh that's what my process was that's that's super interesting because obviously um, the sex work and the sex scenes were probably re-traumatizing for you having dealt with what you dealt with as a young girl. And I know what you mean by um, summarizing. Um, I took I don't write a lot about um, abuse in my book. Um, I kind of there's implications that you can make certain. Um, you know, there's some overt stuff, but most of it's just implying, and you, you as the reader, have to figure out how bad it was. And because yeah, I never I wanted really, it to be like that, but I love. But you are very specific in the book about the sex work, not about the sexual trauma from your past. But and yeah. that's more poetic and lyrical, and I that's what I really loved about it too, because that's how you might think of it as an adult. It's just like you kind of got to put it in context. And then with the sex work, though, it's very matter of fact. And you have, I mean, you have a story called Show Me Your Pussy and like... Um, I was actually like, going to read that one today. Oh, great. And <laughs> yeah, uh, I love your, by the way, I am a huge title person and I love your chapter titles. Thank um, you. So much yeah. fun to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love, there's an art to it. I've had people, with, I mean, you have a great title of your book too, right? One word strip. I mean, the best titles are one or two words. Um, and then The Wild Goose, <laughs> you have a chapter called... Uh, Balls like a Japanese eggplant, I think it's called. I just, I loved your titles. It brought this sense of levity to it where we as the reader knew you weren't taking yourself too seriously. I think titles can do a lot um, without saying too much. Um, But so let's talk about um, addiction. So in the book, um, the narrator becomes sober at the end, kind of um, not only sober, 
but it's almost like a, a what's it called? The coming of age story about becoming a writer, right? Like all typical, right. like the best coming of age memoirs are about really about the writer, portrait of the artist, the the writer's journey to becoming um, the young person's journey as an adult to becoming a writer. And that's part of the story. But uh, the addiction sense of it, that's what I liked about it is that you don't sugarcoat addiction, but it's also not um, a morality tale. Like mm-hmm. I was bad. I did that. It's more about this narrator who has to kind of overcome that to get where she's meant to go, which is back to college, even though she's using part of the time while she's at college. But um, and then to becoming a writer, she has to get sober. She has to deal. The narrator has to deal with these uh, feelings and these yeah. issues. Right. And, and you know, the main drug of choice for the narrator at first seems to be meth, but then she um, transfers addictions to alcohol. So yeah. I found um, some of the passages about the narrator drinking um, very, they resonated with me uh, deeply as someone who struggles with her own alcohol issues. Um, yeah. That sense of the narrator kind of falling down a well. And uh, so talk about addiction. And I don't think your book's written to show like this morality tale, but it is written to show that like you're always masking something with addiction, right? You're numbing yourself. For me, I certainly was. I mean, uh, and in the, I think the the part about it too that I often hear is, well, I'll keep it to myself. It was never a party. It was always a terror with mm. it. Uh, so yeah. it's really strange to have done it as long as I did because it wasn't like I was out having a good time. Mm. But Yeah, even curious. with the drinking, the narrator clearly does not know how to just have a good time with it. The narrator is downing alcohol in a bathroom. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah, it's, there's it's, a lot of bathrooms in the book. A lot trying, of to, trying to disappear, right? Trying yeah, to exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and it, with addiction for me, what happened when I uh, thought I was sober, thought I was getting sober was like, you know, for example, my, you know, dealer turtle or Casper yeah. was in jail and I couldn't get any meth. I thought, well, I guess I'm sober now. I'm going to be sober. And the depression anxiety was so gripping that as soon as I could get the drugs again, it was like, that was bad, the drugs, but so was not doing the drugs. That was, at least with the drugs, it was like I could somehow check out on some level. It works um, so it doesn't in a way, right? I mean, it, it it probably alleviated the anxiety, but created all these other issues, but then the anxiety comes up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I also didn't think I could do college without crystal meth, mm. which is, uh, you know, insane. But uh, how I, I thought, well, one, I'll quit after college. Yeah, um, and and I thought it was really important to capture the drinking because that didn't start for me until maybe I was thirty six. I had never been a drinker at all. And, That's what I found so fascinating yeah. with, about that transfer of addiction. Yeah, and and really quick I could see the escalation Mm. and that scared me so bad uh and I knew it was a replacement yeah you know my twin sister who's been sober for years and years she always tells me you know Juanita you can't (laughs) she says it's an old saying in AA like you can't um 
once you turn a cucumber into a pickle, you kind of right. can't go back, right? Right. And that's right. the sense I got. And there's a book we were talking about that's going to be a trivia question that reminded me of uh, how uh, visceral and how um, escalating the drinking is very quickly was, uh, you know, it, it's like, yeah, you're right. Like, it's just going because you were already up here with the other addiction. So it was really yeah. interesting. So um, yeah. the sobriety and the writing, they seemed to me for you, at least they went hand in hand. Uh, yeah, they really did because the more recovered I became, and I don't mean from drugs and alcohol, Yeah, but recovered Trauma. within myself. Yeah. Uh, the more I was able to, sit for longer and longer periods with the book, with the mm. editing process, with writing, right? Mm. And that was one of the hardest parts for me was uh, coming to the coming to the computer. So I had all these journals of all the writing. So I started transcribing it, but taking a look at what is this mound of documents and mm -hmm. not knowing what the story was yet. Like, even though it's my life, it was like, I didn't know, like, I, I was just going to write about childhood. I mean, uh, mm. adulthood. Like, I started out with adulthood. Okay. Childhood came later as a suggestion that I didn't like, uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, but I thought I would just try it. Uh, I think I kind of lost track of what, I, oh, yeah, the recovery with the writing. Uh, and, well, I don't think your book would make as much sense without the childhood stuff. It's like, right. you know, that talking head song, How Did I Get Here? It's like... um you know, right, you need right. to know what led to the narrator because otherwise, and um, I think a woman named Mary Beth O'Connor who wrote From Junkie to Judge did a good job of, at this too in her book where she starts in her teenage years, a little older, but a good way of showing how it led. And then yeah. you understand the narrator so much better. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting how some memoirs uh, or, or addiction, uh, especially in that genre, memoirs, are able to pull it off without going it back into childhood. Yeah. There are some. Yeah. Carolyn Knapp did it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that yeah. does seem, that seems very difficult. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, all my favorite memoirs, Glass Castle, Angel's Ashes, Liar's Club, they start in childhood, typically. Um, Wild is the exception to that by Cheryl Strayed. She flashes back to childhood later, but the majority of her book is an adult voice or, you know, young adult yeah. or old, young woman voice, whatever you want to call it. But yeah. I think there's something, you know, in screenwriting, they call it the wound, right? What is um, the wound that we're all trying to fill or heal? Yeah. And, and and I think without that wound of the child in this book, I don't think we would understand because we're we're so like raptured enraptured with this narrator. She's like this survivor, she's kind of feisty, she's kind of insecure and a little bit neurotic, but super fun and funny. And I read one review and they're like they're like uh uh a likable train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, no, no. Really and I'm funny. the same way. I always say I'm a mess, you know. I can do crazy. I can't do sane. And, um, you know, she is a lovable train wreck. You just love her. And you're rooting for her through the whole book to get sober and get it together because she clearly cannot do <laughs> the life she's doing anymore. And, um Let's talk about the brutal honesty in the book. You talk about stripping, drug use, uh, alcoholism, 
Um, did you always know that once you decided to publish it, that you were just going to go for it? You were going to leave the blood on the page, put it all out there and, you know, people be damned. Yeah, I did. I was thought there's no point otherwise. Mm. And I think, I mean, there was one particular scene that I didn't write in there, but once it was written, I knew it would be in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that, that's where my mentor came in. She, I'll never forget. I always think it's so interesting. There was one scene in a, the Peninsula Hotel, and a fancy hotel in LA, and something happened in that room that I didn't, that I, I read it to Jill, my mentor, and she looked at me, She's in her early, it was in her early, early 80s at the time, and she said, something's missing. And I looked at her, and I'm like, how do you know that? Like, she's just like, I just feel it. And she was absolutely right. The one thing that happened in that room that I didn't want to write about was exactly what she, yeah. And once I wrote about it, I was like, that's not, you know, it's not that big a deal to write about. Yeah. But for some reason, I was holding back. So in those, in that, in that sense, um, Yeah. Yeah, they say that the thing you don't want to write about is what exactly you need to write about, you know? Right, and, and that uh, was one of those examples, and uh, that's where a great editor or, you know, comes in. So uh, your mentor was in her 80s? Yeah, she's, I think, 88 now. Yeah. Ah! Yeah, yeah. So. What does she think of your success? She's thrilled. I mean, she <laughs> uh, is a very successful author, Uh especially in her younger years, New York Times bestseller and author. And she had studied with the greats like Helen Gurley Brown from wow. Cosmopolitan. And uh, she's, she's thrilled. Uh, I think there was a point where she thought I wasn't going to be publishing it. And she was really disappointed. Um, but I knew that. I, oh, this book had to, it had, it was. Right, I was like, Jill, it's just time. I'm not going to go with the first. Uh, publisher that company like, I just I yeah it took a long time <laughs> yeah yeah uh, talk about your road to publication how did it work out for you I've told you that mine was just you know years and years and years and I gave up couldn't find an agent spent two oh. years doing that nonsense so someone could take my money and there's nothing if you can find an agent great I just never found one and I'm really good at just marketing myself. So I said, fuck it, I'll just do it myself. You are yeah. really good at that. And that was, uh, uh, that's the most challenging part of it for me. With a smaller um, press. It, it is hard. Yeah. It's all, I, I mean, got to do it all. And you're uh, good at it, though. You are good at it. And, and, and you enjoy it, probably. I enjoy it. I honestly have this theory that don't, you know, go hi- hire a publicist. And I know you had one at one point. Um, if you don't want to do it, but you can do it all yourself. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's, well, it's, it's funny a that you think I look at, like I enjoy it. <laughs> really? You don't <laughs> like it? Well, it's, it's, I find it difficult. I mean, I wasn't on Instagram or anything mm-hmm. uh, before. So it's like, I joined Instagram like a couple months before the book came out. I thought, That's well, great. what's this? I don't even know what, what's a story? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's a real? I still don't know. Like TikTok. I'm like, oh, this is. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Uh, but I think it did. It did help that I was. Uh, dip, I was a hard worker with it. That, yeah, that you have that work ethic. You really do. Um, yeah, talk you about your road to. to publication. How did it happen for you? Very challenging. Very long. Wow. So many road uh, uh, turns, and really, uh, I lost faith 
quite a number of times. Uh, I had an eight, I had a, went through a couple agents. I had one publisher that wanted to publish it. And then this publisher that I ended up going with, but I stepped away because I needed, wanted to take a break. I wasn't sure about it all. It was, and when I say a break, I mean like a year. Yeah. Um, I just I need to put the pause on this. It just and I, I think your story will give people hope because if this not is not one of the most beautiful memoirs I've ever read, I don't know what is. And you had a struggle to get it to publishing. Oh, so people and, just can't give up. You cannot I, give up. Yeah. I mean, I queried during the pandemic. There was a period of two months where I queried 120 agents. Wow. Yeah. That's so, I, I mean, I became, you know, that, that I don't even think for me in the way I did it, there was yeah. a point where I'm like, wait, this isn't healthy behavior. <laughs> you know, the way well, I was, becomes obsessive, like everything yeah. else, right? Like if I have an addictive personality, like if I smoke exactly. one cigarette, it's too bad. And then I would check my email and it was like, wait, you know, I had, I put, I just stopped one day and I just was like, I'm not gonna, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not doing this right now for however long it takes to get, you know, back to myself. Yeah. So yeah, it, very, very challenging process with the publication. And then how'd uh, you find your publisher? Well, I started sending out uh, to small presses Smart. and uh, yeah, that's what I did. And, and then even choosing a small press, I talked to so many of the authors that went with that press. I really did the research. And so okay. I, I really knew what I was getting into uh, in terms of doing the publicity myself and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, the road to publication, I mean, it, it was particularly challenging because it happened, you know, the, the book launch, as we were talking before, um, happened within months of my father passing. So sorry. So, you know, um, that was to, ju to juggle that. Uh, yeah. At the same time, a blessing because I, uh, I, yeah, I wouldn't have wanted him to read it. Mm. So I don't mean a blessing that he died, but just the timing of it all. That in, a, yeah. in looking back, that it wasn't published earlier. That there was that challenge of getting it published. You and know, your dad was a very famous writer himself. He was a poet laureate um, up north and, uh, you know, was very well known. So I understand the hesitancy. You know, it's it's hard enough to write about your parents when they're not public figures, uh, when, they, when they're just characters. Um, you know, I think publication is weird. It's really a matter of timing and luck and magic. Oh. I almost okay. fictionalized my book. I got, found a publisher, one of my favorite presses, uh, Cinco Punto. Um, they're now, oh, they know, go, yeah, they go by a different name. They're bought up by Scholastic. Lee Ballinger was like, I like your book, but I think it should be a young adult fiction novel. And I was like, oh, maybe one day, but no, this novel, this memoir has to get out there with my real parents, you know, Mexican mother, cowboy, white fall. I really wanted to keep the integrity I mean, of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's only good if it's true. Right. And, yeah. um, and so I do think that you have to know what you want. And uh, yeah. Tortoise Press did such a beautiful job with your book, with the layout of it. Um, the thing I realized is you don't have, um, even though you have chapter headings, you don't have like a, a table of contents, which I, I thought was interesting, but I like that about it. 
you know, I, it's interesting because in the Kindle version there is, and I oh. always saw it with a table of contents with, there's the 75, I think there's 75 short chapters. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted there to be a, a table of contents because I wanted it to be like a short story collection in the sense that if someone just picked it up, they could go to, um, you know, dope and bald pussies or corn yeah. the cob and porn and just read that, those two pages and see if they liked it. And uh, I'm not sure why there's not why there why no. that is not in there. But I like that about it. I think it makes you kind of flip through it more. You know, one of my favorite books of all time is Traveling uh, Mercies by Annie Lamott. And I love um, her so much. yeah, and I'll just pick up that book and I'll flip to the certain chapter and I won't look at the table of contents. I'll just flip to it and I'll read a story when I need to be inspired. And yeah, uh, yeah I think that's interesting that you wanted to it because these are mostly vignettes. Um, yeah, but they all intersect together. Um, so we're, let's do our, our first giveaway um, for anyone listening in. If you want a copy of Strip and Memoir, the first trivia question is who wrote a best selling uh, name the name of the book that Carolyn Knapp wrote about her own addiction struggles with alcohol. That's Carolyn Knapp, K-N-A-P-P. The first person who puts um, it in the comments will win a copy of Hannah's book. It's so good. It's And it, I mean, I'm just so glad for your success. It's getting rave reviews. I Thank met you, so you um, at a reading at Antioch online. Um, you, you got your BA there and they were highlighting you and they asked me to come on as a as a Macondo person um, to add a little, you know, color to the lineup, I think, which is good. No, I mean, I think that's yeah. what they should be doing. Right. I, sure. I don't have a problem with that. And yeah. um, I'm like, yeah, but you need like your that. own, you need your own. I think that you could have been highlighted. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it was nice because I got to hear you and some other writers I didn't know. And I was like, damn. Her it was such an honor when I met you. I was like, I can't. Yeah. And let's talk about something that we have in common. And people, put your um, answer to my trivia question in the comments if you want to copy a strip. And the other one, we're just going to raffle off to the first person who shares um, this podcast. And just so everyone knows, I hired a producer, um, and we are actually transitioning to audio as well. So this will be available on Apple Podcasts very shortly as soon as my producer gets it um, uploaded. So... You work with an organization that I want to highlight, um, a Right to Write Press, an organization that supports emerging writers who are incarcerated. Talk about that organization and, and why you volunteer with them on their board. Well, I was looking to kind of be of service in the community in some in some aspect, and and uh, and I had uh, start done something with Angel Food Project in Los Angeles for those who live here. And as I went to the kitchen and I did the orientation and I went for a day and I was like, I'm not, <laughs> all the kitchen's not my thing. So I was really praying like, where, where can I best be of service using what I have? Like what, where I could be within like a few months, I was at a reading with my father in Northern California. We were doing a reading together and uh, a woman there, we were talking about our, you know, uh, about interests. And I said something about the incarceration uh, rate. And, and, and she, uh, shortly after that, I got not, uh, she went to the board and she had, you know, 
I had written a letter of about myself, and then they they voted me in. Or wow. I'm not. I mean, it's not vote you in, but kind of yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they vote you yeah. on board. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you, what does that organization do? Like, how do they support writers who are incarcerated? Do they help them find places to place their work? Like, how does it work if someone's, because I can tell you, if someone's in prison, it's really hard to communicate. They can call you. Um, they can't really use the internet or anything usually unless they have a phone that they put in somewhere, which some people do. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happened during the pandemic. It all just stopped because they couldn't even write letters. You can't send stamps. Um, couldn't send envelopes at all of it was wow. just like the communication and then the, the teachers on um, the board the ones that go in, into the prison uh, weren't able to go into the prison so the wow. communication was it's and we're still just getting back into that uh, it's been very challenging we're kind of taking a look at where what we can do now uh, yeah. my part of it is a uh, uh, well, I had one mentee, so I also like was a, I'm a mentor, oh, but a mentee, uh, and um, they uh, for then, someone who's incarcerated. Well, they actually got released. So then there's but there's all these like laws about like, can I still mentor them? Right? Yeah, a trans, yeah. a, trans uh, a trans woman actually, uh, who's and I don't know where they are right now or <laughs> where yeah. she is right now. Uh, there's a, it's, it's very complicated right now. Uh, however, publishing their books, because with Right to Write Press, we publish their books. Oh, wow. In hopes, too, that it will help their case uh, mm-hmm. in, in some ways. Uh, mm-hmm. one of if they're the, up for parole, something you mean? With, with what? The parole, yeah. 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 And the most exciting, like one of the, one of the, not most exciting, but one of the things too is one of the authors whose work is just absolutely incredible, absolutely incredible. In fact, I'll send you, I'll, I'll yeah. get, I'll send you my copy of his book. I'll get one. Uh, his name's Teke Junior, and I think he's in for life. They don't tell us, but I mean, it seems like a very long time. He won the California po- uh, Incarcerated Poetry Prize for $5,000. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, and getting to, you know, have a, any hand in that and yeah. him sending that to his family. Yeah. Uh, and then I got oh. to enter his uh, poems a few weeks ago. I entered a whole bunch of his poems into Voices and Faces Project. They're doing a collaborative. And I, I like placing... Uh, I like submitting their work for them. I, I, yeah. I enjoyed that. Uh, uh, I'd love to get more of the work out there. I think it's so important, you know, because I, I think a lot about uh, what does the literary establishment value? And they tend to value these highfalutin voices. Um, oh, my God. And these poems in this, uh, of some, I mean, unbelievable. So and that's what I mean. Like the rawest stuff. Um, yes. someone who's writing about their own experience Being in a prison cell like that is, I want to read that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it gives me chills. It's just so good. I don't want to so read a poem unaffected. about a friggin' tree in the leaves. I want to read about <laughs> what it feels like to be incarcerated and why it's an injustice and how they make their way through the day. Like to yeah. me, um, exactly how they yeah. make their way through the day. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and, uh, having known so many incarcerated people, they're just people. <laughs> I wish people understood that, that are yeah. so judgy about people who are in prison, even for a very long time. I have a client that was looking at prison. We got him into IST diversion. And I can't say his name or anything, but he's graduating my program and he's going to move with his sister. And I always just say, like, the best day is when I get to see my client out of custody. Like, that is the best day because they're so dehumanized. They call my clients bodies. And um, it's so disgusting how we treat people who are incarcerated in America. Yeah. Yeah, the, the whole system. I, uh, it's gross. Yeah, yeah because it, they're both for the grace of God go, could go all of us. And I don't know if most people realize that. Maybe if yeah. you've lived this charmed life and you've never done anything and wrong. And all the wrong, uh, wrongful incarcerations. Right. And what's really interesting, you don't really hit on it in your book, but I, I would find it interesting if you ever did a talk about, you know, you were never arrested when you were a call girl no. for the most part, right? You were never caught with drugs and you're a white cis no. woman for the most part. And so that it's like me too. I'm a half or I can pass. I was let go so many times, me and my friends drinking and driving, using cops would throw away your drugs. Right. And because um, you're a cute girl. Oh, you- I mean, I think I got, I think I didn't get pulled over all those times I was high because of, yeah, my color and, and the way I look. I mean, just a, you know, yeah, little, yeah. just an innocent little girl. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, no, I, yeah, exactly. Lying no, yeah. down the freeway. But I also had a uh, white station wagon. And I think that really saved me. I know why I don't have any DUIs is I never had a car that worked. I walked a lot. I took a lot of buses and I was always big and thrice. I didn't have a working car that was dependable till I was almost 30. My husband gave me a number of cars, but I would always blow the engine. And uh, when he was my boyfriend, but I, I never really had a working car. I was always struggling to get a ride somewhere. So I think that's the only reason I don't have a had lot of talks about that. We're like, cause she's like, your car looks so good. It's so fancy. <laughs> I'm like, I think it's just cause we're used to like, you know, 1988 Mazda that screech and we're sharing it. You know, <laughs> I had a Suzuki Samurai. I had a Hyundai Elantra that didn't have brakes. And people would say, oh, this, you know, this." I sold, I got really quick story because um, I don't want to run out of time. I want you to read some more. But I had this Hyundai when I, I had finally transferred to UCR after about five, seven years in junior college. And I um, sold my Hyundai. And then the police came to my house in the middle of the night because the same day someone bought it for $200, they abandoned it on the freeway. No. <laughs> so they oh. thought I had been kidnapped because the car was abandoned on the freeway. Oh my God. But it was such a piece of shit that these people bought it and abandoned it. Oh, I see. I thought I was thinking, oh my God. No, they bought it the same day and then abandoned it. And it was still under my name, obviously. So, oh my God. (laughs) They broke into my apartment at UC Riverside thinking I had been killed or kidnapped or something. Oh, yeah. But I was like, no, I just sold it. And they're like, "Mm." (laughs) the thing's a piece of shit. I was like, yeah. Oh, Dante said, uh, you guys are great together. I love Juanita. I love you. I yeah, want to meet you, you yeah. and your sister in person. Does your sister live in LA? She lives in Boyle Heights, yes. Oh, okay, yeah. Cool. I love Boyle Heights. There's a really good Mexican restaurant there. Oh, uh, sure the famous one. Yeah, it's across from where I used to DJ in Boyle Heights. I oh, love we'll Boyle have to Heights. Talk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um let's um just so everyone knows. 
Jorge got the trivia question right. I'll send him out a copy of Hannah's book. The other book um, that we're going to, oh, Victoria Wise hey. here. Hi, Victoria. She's going to be on uh, in two weeks. Oh, and Victoria, hi, Victoria. She wrote a beautiful memoir about her, losing her dog. And um, she also wrote Acts of Contrition, which is a beautiful collection of short stories. Um, so, you, and she's a uh, librarian or former librarian. Victoria Waddle uh, um, actually works for Inlandia too and does a lot of uh, anthologies. And she's been here lurking, she said. Oh, wonderful, Victoria. <laughs> Thank you for being here. You would here. love her work. Uh, she's a wonderful uh, writer and she's coming out um, with a young adult novel too. Um, and then Jorge won the book, and then hey, your sister hi. said we're great together, and that she loves me. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I saw your birthday video. Was your sister in that with you? Oh yeah, you two were like Laverne and fucking Shirley. It was so cute. Oh, now like, you oh, really won us over. We are all about Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> well, you're wearing the head. Yeah, well, are you Laverne or are you Shirley? Oh, that's a good question. I'm uh, Laverne. Dante. I always have a J. Yeah. I have a feeling. Well, I'll. I don't know. We'll have to. I'm going to discuss that with her after. For <laughs> and then Lucy and Ethel. Are you Lucy or are you Ethel? So I you think, have to let me know. I think I'm Lucy. I'm pretty goofy. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, before we go, because we're going to go about five minutes over, uh, because I want you to read. But tell people where to find your work. Um, and then just how to find you, any events you have coming up, if you want to talk about that really quick. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, thank you so much for having me on. I just adore you. It's such, a, such an honor. So much fun talking with you. Great questions. Uh, you can find me at my website. It's Hannah, spelled like Hannah, Sward, S-W-A-R-D, dot com. And then Hannah Sward, author for Instagram and then Hunter Sword at, uh, at Facebook. And uh, my book can be bought really, I guess, anywhere. Uh, if you support independent bookstores, um, bookshop.org, Amazon. Great. Well, let's end this episode with another reading. But really quick, before um, before you go to your reading, I want to um, give a shout out to Victoria Waddle, who's going to be on in two weeks. People turn tune in for that. That's the 16th of Wednesday. Always same bat channel, same bat time, 7 p.m. on a Wednesday. Um, I also wanted to give a shout out to uh, Beyond Baroque. We are doing a Latinx Social Justice Literary Festival on September 23rd at Beyond Baroque. We're going to have tables. So anyone um, that needs any help with an expungement, if you're watching this later, um, any help with immigration, we're going to have lawyers from the L.A. Public Defender's Office there. We're also going to have amazing writers reading uh, Dr. Ricky Rodriguez who wrote um, A Kiss Across the Ocean, Michelle Cruz Gonzalez, a Pancato professor who wrote Spitboy Rule, and then uh, Margaret Garcia, who uh, wrote Heartland, um, or Daughterland, excuse me, and she's with El Martillo Press. They're all going to be reading. We're going to have an open mic stage. We're going to have tacos. We're going to have um, sodas, water, maybe some free beer. Not sure yet. Trying to get a donation. So um, anyone that wants to be involved in the Social Justice Literary Festival at Beyond Baroque, hopefully you and your sister can come to it, Hannah. Hannah and uh, and um, it's on September 23rd, 12 to 5 p.m. in Venice at Beyond Baroque. So I just wanted oh. to give a shout out for that. 
I know um, you asked, but I just remembered I do have an event. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you we'll we'll meet in person one day. So we're gonna end. Well, I don't mean that day, but I mean a, a reading event. But uh, oh, talk yeah. about it. Tell people oh, about it. Uh, it's Rorschach in Los Angeles on September seventeenth. If you're in LA, Rorschach. How do you spell uh, Rorschach? Uh, oh, I have to introduce you to him to get you in there. Oh, uh, R R O A R Rorschach. It's a literary oh. series in uh, awesome. Echo Park. Oh, awesome! And what time does it start? <laughs> uh, I think five. you're going to send me the info, okay. and I'm going to put the invite on the Life of Gem page so everyone can go see you read in person. Um, I will definitely be there. I definitely want to go to that event and watch when I get Well, I definitely want to introduce you because uh, you'd be a great uh, part of that for him. Aww, to thank on. you. Thank you. Yeah. So we're going to end the Life of Gems show with you uh, taking us out with the reading. I'm going to put the camera on you and then um, I'll come back on briefly, yeah. tell everyone bye. But here you go. Read your second part. Um, weird but I have to turn my light on because I can't, um, can't see, it's dark now. Okay, here we go. Uh, this is specifically for, for Georgie. Uh, okay, uh, I think I'm still here. Okay. okay, Friendly House. Those early days of trying to get sober, I didn't think I could do it. Every morning I'd get out of bed and press the red button on my two cup Mr. Coffee Maker, and wait, staring out the window at the fig tree. Drip, drip, drip. I loved that fig tree. Just wanted to lay there and stare at it all day and wait until night when I could get my head to the pillow sober. Head to pillow sober. That's all I had to do. Nothing else mattered except not using or drinking that day. Sometimes I'd get under the covers in the middle of the day and try and sleep the hours away, but the hours were always there. It had been years since I had lived sober. It was all new, learning how to be in the world without turning to speed or alcohol. The cravings were bad. My therapist told me about a place in Koreatown where women who have drug and alcohol problems have meetings and they share their stories and try to help each other get better. Friendly House, the first all-girls residential rehab since 1951. A big fat house next to the Korean church on Normandy. It was the only house on a narrow street surrounded by apartment buildings with gated doors that needed painting. Cracked windows and unwanted Staying mattresses set out front on the sidewalk, waiting to be taken away. People sat on the steps outside in baggy shorts and white tube socks pulled high. It was always hard to park, and the sign said no parking until 7. So at around 6.30, people would sit in their faded 1988 Hondas with their windows rolled down, watching for parking enforcement until seven so they could get a spot for the night. I'd circle around and around and it seemed like I always ended up getting the same spot on Oxford, a couple streets over in front of a sacred shrine of Mary or somebody, I don't know who. It was a structure made out of wood, 
set in between those ugly apartments. And it had a pointed roof and three wooden walls, no front wall. You could just walk right in and kneel in front of Mary and maybe light a candle because there were lots of candles with Jesus Christ on them. The tall, skinny kind, like you see at the dollar store. Dried orange gerbers and yellow roses and sometimes a few brown bananas beneath her. I never saw bananas at church before, but I remember seeing them at the feet of Krishna at an Indian temple. But Krishna's bananas were yellow, ripe, no bruises. Sometimes I thought maybe I should pick a flower and place it there and make a wish or something, but I never did. I walk over to Friendly House and up the big front yard that had patches of grass missing. And the house cat, skinny and gray with white feet, he would always be sitting there on the first step looking at me before running away under a car. I don't think that cat liked all of us girls coming around or even the girls that lived there. It was a lot of us coming in and out, getting 30 days clean and starting to look maybe a little better. And then they'd leave and sometimes they'd come back and try again, but more often they didn't come back. That first time I went in, to sat, I sat back and cried. Right away, it was a place where it was okay to not be okay. I don't remember what one person said the first night, except for this one woman. She came right up to me with her burgundy wig and deep scratchy voice and shook her finger at me. A long purple nail kind of curved. It was so long with sparkles on it. She looked at me straight in the eye. Honey, you never have to drink or use again, no matter what. No one ever said something like that to me before. And it just seemed like, I don't know, but there was something about that purple nail and what she said that had me come back. Mm. I love it. You capture that kind of sober living residential rehab so well. So well. I, I don't think I've ever read a book that captured it the way um, I've been to these places to, you know, see my clients and stuff. And uh, you capture it. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, I just wanted to say I looked up um, your event. You're going to be reading live on September 17th. That's a Sunday <laughs> at 4 p.m. at Rorschach um, on seventeen fourteen. Is that Patrick O'Neill's uh yeah, I'll be, I'll be reading with him. Yeah. He wrote this book. I'm reading it right now. Oh. And at the Circle K, I love this book. Um, oh, wonderful. He uh, was my conversation partner at my launch at Book Soup. Oh, really? He's an amazing writer and he's a punker. So I, uh, he's particularly Yeah, he'll be there. He, um, I think he's the one that asked for um, me to be there with him. That's amazing. <laughs> Great. How I got there, yeah. For everyone, uh, you can see. Hannah Reed with Patrick O'Neill, who wrote this beautiful, this is, he has a number of books. His most yeah. recently is at Anarchy at the Circle K, On the Road with the Dead Kennedys, TSOL, Flipper, Subhumans, and Heroin. I mean, uh, that's a it, subtitle for you. It that's is. It's a great book, and so is Gun, um, Needle, and Spoon. And, I haven't read uh, that one yet. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that was a 
while ago. It's a very good one. Very, very yeah, good. He's a memoirist as well. And there was, um, I saw a picture. And then the what about your book? Can you show your copy of it? Oh, yeah, I have. So I have this book, uh, Portrait of a Deputy Public Defender, which is, this is a chat book. It's more of a social justice. You won an award. Yeah, this won an award. And then my memoir, me and my uh, sisters, uh, Jackie, who hates this picture, my twin. Oh, that picture. Oh, God. <laughs> oh it's even worse. It, it has a, we cropped it because there's a sign that says, like, slippery, wet, and wild. Like, I don't know where this picture was taken, somewhere in the IE, obviously. Um, and then this back of it is uh, the Inland Empire, kind of the valley. But, you know, oh. I love books that are set in time and place. And uh, your book clearly is. And I just have to tell everyone, please go out and get Hannah's book now. It's amazing. It will change your life. It's so well done. Whether you have an addiction, struggling with an addiction, whether you have trauma, it, it speaks to all of that. But what most of all, it's the sense that you can just accept yourself. And the fact that you could write this beautiful book, um, I mean, it's it's amazing. I can't wait for your next book. Tell people really quick. When is that coming out? Do you know yet? No. no. <laughs> but the title is Queenie Goes to Bosnia. So. Oh, what's it called? Queenie Goes to Bosnia. Ah. And is it memoir or fiction? Short stories. Okay. Great. A short yeah. story collection. Short stories and essays. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank Our you team. so much. Thank you for having me. And, this was uh, fun. Thank you for everyone for being here. Yes. And everyone have a great day. Bye.